G'day, my name is Damien Manda, the founder and CEO of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. I'm with SoFlo Vegans. Welcome back to another episode of the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Russell, also the founder of SoFlow Vegans. Also joining us as co-hosts on this episode, we have Alba, the veg nurse. This is an exciting episode because we had an opportunity to speak with Damien Mander, who's also known as the Vegan Sniper. If you watch the Game Changers, you probably saw him featured and saw him and his team featured in that documentary on this episode we talk about a number of topics we talk about anti-poaching trophy hunting we talk about the culture in africa right now and so many other topics but one thing that i really want you to listen to is his story about a near-death encounter with african wildlife so stay tuned to that part in the podcast we want to encourage you to go to soflowvegans.com slash podcast and also check out all of the other episodes that we have we're on episode on season four rather so this is episode 40 so there's 40 other episodes for you to check out so that's soflowvegans.com slash podcast and uh, also, while you're there, go to our community page so you can see all the ways that you can become involved with SoFlow Vegans, check out our directories and a bunch of other cool features. And the best part is that it's absolutely free. So make sure you go check that out and stay tuned for the rest of the season. We have some other episodes coming up and I'll talk about it a little bit more at the end. So with that being said, we want you to enjoy today's episode with Damian Mander. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. We are so excited to have you listening and hopefully watching this episode. And today we have a guest that we've been excited to speak to for a while now. Alba had a chance to see him in person when he stopped here in South Florida. And Alba, go ahead and introduce our amazing guest. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. I am super excited and super happy that once again you are able to join us. But like Sean said, I met this wonderful man last year. It's none other than Damien Mander, the founder and CEO of the International Anti Poaching Foundation. Welcome, Damien. Yeah, g'day, guys. How you doing? Thanks for having me. So, Damien, as you guys can tell by maybe the little accent in the g'day part, he must be from Australia. Am I wrong? Yeah, no, I'm from Australia, and the, the accent amplifies when I drink beer. So, still <laughs> held, held I left Australia 15, 16 years ago now, and I've still manage to keep the accent. So it gets me out of trouble when I'm in America. <laughs> I love that. So Damien, we have a tradition here at SoFlow Vegans, as I'm sure you're well aware of. We like to start off with the vegan journey just to set the tone for the conversation. So how did you uh, start? Like what were the seeds that were planted for yourself? I mean, I, I was traveling uh, 2009 after Iraq uh, in Africa, ended up setting up this foundation and each year I'd go back to Australia and we'd, we'd put on this music concert, this music festival called Raw for Africa and, and raise some bucks and come back over to Africa and spend it on, on our projects. And we had a committee and there was one woman in the committee, she, she was like, saying, you know, why are we serving meat at, uh, at this festival if we're trying to save animals? And I, I you know, say, well, you know, chickens and cows aren't going extinct. And then a common excuse, oh, we're doing all this, this good work over there protecting animals. We, you know, surely we can come back here and, and have a barbecue. Uh, but she planted a seed and uh, that seed sprouted, hey. And uh, it took a few years. But I was going out each day, walking around the bush, protecting one group of animals, coming home in the, in the evening and throwing another animal on the fire. And uh, what I was saying in terms of, you know, I was traveling around the world by this stage, we're doing a lot of media, a lot of public speaking. What I was saying and how I was behaving were heading in two different directions. And uh, you know, ultimately, I knew I was being a hypocrite in, in my behavior. 
so that was essentially it. One day, actually, I was, I was asked to do um, one of these TEDx talks. It was at the Sydney Opera House. I'd never done uh, uh, you know, a talk in front of such a big audience before. It was going to be 2,500 people. And you know, so I had to spend like, six months' notice to practice and get your story right. And it was meant to be about Andy poaching. And I started doing all this research and then stumbled onto, uh, stumbled onto some talks and some videos, Phil Wallen, Gary Yorofsky, uh, and, of course, the, the vegan maker itself, the movie Earthlings, uh, done by a very good mate of mine now, uh, Sean, Sean Monson. And I watched that and I'm like, fuck, you know, what's going on here? This is a big story. And, and, and me as an environmentalist, a conservationist, we spend so much time out there trying to protect these animals and were actually in the dietary choices that I was making, I was responsible for destroying the very habitat that they, they needed. That was pretty much it. Yeah. Pretty much it correlated with what you were trying to do. And then all of a sudden, like you said, the other side of the coin was like, Hey guys, let's barbecue. I mean, that is so, yeah. I don't know if it's an Australian thing, but like in, in the U S that's like a tradition you have to barbecue. Yeah, but you, you, beyond barbecues, you also got to be able to call yourself out, hey. And and I suppose you know nature's had billions of years to evolve, and we've got we get a lifetime, you know, sixty, seventy, maybe eighty years if we're lucky. And the uh, evolution is cutting away the bits that don't work, keeping the bits that do work, and from your experiences. And uh, that's transition to to veganism was. Uh, so you mentioned that there were times in your life where you were able to call yourself out. And I, in previous conversations that I've had with people that they've had those moments in their lives as well. Yeah. Do you feel yeah. that that's an important characteristic to have in order to, to be able to come to that realization? Like, like environmentalists that may be out there, people who may be veterinarians who may still consume meat do you feel like there yeah. has to be that uh, uh, tradition or of, of them doing that sort of thing? I mean, what better time to discuss uh, where our food comes from than in the middle of a global pandemic that's crashing global markets, restricted us all to our living rooms, uh, killing people across the world. It's taking off here in Africa. There's, there's about 7,000 cases now. And this is this is all linked back. Zoonotic diseases, 75% of the, all all. Uh, emerging zoonotic diseases come from from wildlife and from animals uh, transitioning across from animals and and that the petri dishes that we create in factory farming and uh, regardless of whether or not we like the taste of something we've got to look at the bigger picture here uh, I mean a lot of a lot of people humanity I and mean, if you want to look at the balance in, in not-for-profit funding 97 95 percent of not-for-profit funding goes to humanitarian causes with about 30 33 percent to religion the other five percent is for all uh, wildlife, climate change, environment, animals. Uh, so you look at that split, and you, you understand that's the that's the balance in our mind as a species on what's important and what's not. So most of our importance is on ourselves. So if you look at it that way, uh, okay, if we keep eating the way we eat and doing this to um, our, our planet, we're actually the endangered ones. Now, that's how you appeal to 95% of people. The other 5% of people, people like us, that actually care about the other side of the equation, that's that's the animals and, and the billions of animals that are killed each year in shitty conditions, uh, suffering, uh, where the best day of their life is the day that their life is taken and it finishes and they no longer have to live in that, that horrible existence. And... You know, it's it's there's there's multiple ways of looking at this. People go vegan for for various reasons. Me, it had nothing to do with health. It was all about um, not wanting to do something to an to to someone that couldn't defend themselves. And me, and I'm an alpha male. Uh, you know my background. Uh, ultimately, you know, tough guys are the ones that stand up and defend those that can't defend themselves. And I wanted to be that person. I didn't want to be the person that exploited the vulnerable. And above all, I didn't want to pay someone else to do my dirty work. Can you talk about that when you said, you guys know my background. I do know a little bit. We did have to do research. But for the ones who are not aware, who just are the first who, to hear about you, what is that background? So, I mean, I grew up in Australia, uh, fell in love with the water from a young age, was always down diving, free diving. And uh, that became a career in the Navy as a Navy clearance diver. That's, you know, for those of you guys here in the, in the, in the States, uh, that's Australia's version of, of your seals. 
September 11, uh, there was a, a new unit formed, Special Operations Unit under under the Army, uh, and I went across into that unit uh, and became a, a Special Operations Sniper. Uh, left the military to work in the private sector, sector alongside uh, US and coalition forces in Iraq and uh, in 2005. So yeah, I was, spent three years in Iraq there. And then uh, got out of Iraq with 10 fingers and 10 toes. And after, a, I say a sabbatical, a sabbatical is, is code for a downward spiral of drugs and alcohol, um, I ended up in, in Africa. Out of the blue, you just looked at the map and like, you know what, I think I would like to go here. Yeah. So I, I hit, um, after 11 months in South America, I hit rock bottom and, uh, you know, reached the crossroads in my life. Uh, you know, what my trip in South America after Iraq started as, as what I thought was a reward after nine years of military service, three years at war, done very well financially, had a very good property portfolio back home in Australia. Australia's a very well-paid uh, military. And then as a private contractor in Iraq, earning tax-free dollars, you know, I'd done, done well. And then this trip to South America ended up being a party and a party ended up being a spiral downwards and uh, you know it's just a, it's, it's a trapper you go from being part of these units uh, where you've got people around you that, that, that care about you it's like a brotherhood uh, and you've got purpose and then all of a sudden the purpose stops and the brotherhood's gone and you're by yourself and you're trying to figure out the what next and I think that's where a lot of us uh, that come out of the military really struggle it's, it's the what next and it's the reintegration back into or trying to reintegrate back into a world where someone expects you to flip burgers or drive an Uber and, you know, you're actually trying to put a bullet through someone from a, a mile away and it's, it's like, it's, it's, the transition isn't there. You come home to a family, to a community who don't understand you anymore and you don't understand that understand that world. And so fortunately for me, I'd heard about uh, anti-poaching and this conservation work years before and it seemed like, it sounded like some sort of romantic adventure and that's, to summarise me, that's probably you know that's why I came to Africa, and it was it was about my next adventure. It's like when I went to the military, it was about me. You know, what can I do for an adventure now? And, and these cool units, it wasn't about serving my country. It was about the next challenge for me. Iraq was about making money, not about what I could do for the situation. And Africa was about a fight, not a cause. And uh, it was actually not until I got over to Africa and started seeing the challenges that Rangers were facing. Uh, and the animals that were being killed, that I really started to to realise there's more to life than these sort of selfish avenues when you're only doing things for yourself. Uh, you know, as I said, as I said before, being able to make significant changes in a short space of time, I liquidated a property portfolio and put 100% of what I had and it spent my entire life at that point working towards. I put it towards starting this organisation and trying to be part of the solution and not the problem. What exactly? is happening in Africa right now in terms of poaching and why did you want to get involved with it? So illegal wildlife trafficking is one of the largest criminal industries in the world behind guns, drugs and, and human trafficking. Uh, it's up there. It's a multi-billion dollar industry each year uh, where people exploit the natural world uh, for their own gain. Uh, there's heavy links into organized crime and even hints into, uh, of, of links into, into terrorism networks as well. Uh, when we started the organisation, it was about going out onto the front lines and being that last line of defence for animals that were being targeted in these paramilitary-type ways, looking at elephants uh, for their tusks, rhinoceros for their, for their horn, and you've got these armed militia-type units often crossing international borders in, in you know, as small a group as two or three, as large as 20 or 30 guys moving around. And they're killing animals that, that can't defend themselves. And so, I was, you know, I saw when I saw this when I came over here, I'm like, well, okay, well, I've got skills that can that can help fight that, and I've got some bucks. Uh, and I, I started this organisation to deal with that. And that's well, it was very militant the way that we started and, and the way that we went out to try and solve problems. But we saw a, a problem and, and we knew the solution. Uh, fast forward 11 years now, and we've evolved from from that organisation that that used to be at the at the coalface in terms of fighting crime, uh, going out and assisting other organisations. What we've been doing now is working a lot with local communities in buying up large tracts of of land trust uh, that had previously been set aside for trophy hunting, 
Uh, we've got five of these these parks now on our portfolio. These are all trophy hunting areas that we've now bought back off the hunting companies. The way that we we pick these reserves is that they're they're part of uh, key um, ecosystems or eco regions. Uh, they create corridors for animals to move across big, lot, wide landscapes. And we're not focusing individual species anymore. We're focusing on these huge areas. And if you protect the area, every species uh, flourishes. So we, we still have uh, two major types of poaching that we deal with. One is uh, subsistence poaching, and that's people poaching for the pot, trying to feed themselves. Uh, we work a lot in the communities and trying to build sustainable alternatives uh, and sustainable livelihoods uh, so that poaching can hopefully one day be a thing of the past. The other thing that we still fight uh, on a daily battle is commercial poaching, uh, illegal wildlife trade and trafficking, and that is your elephant poachers, your rhino poachers, your people that are trying to kill animals on, on a huge scale for their meat. And, uh, yeah, that's that's essentially where we're at, hey. We've gone from being an organisation that's, that's, that's on the inside of the reserve trying to defend it to being on the outside of the reserve working with the communities to protect these areas. And, and it's, it's a human-driven uh, model. Uh, we've learned things the hard way. We started off repeating the same mistakes we, we made in Iraq. And the one lesson I left Iraq, was, left Iraq with was that you can't go in as an occupying force and expect to have a long-term good relationship with a local population or the local community. There's going to be two billion people on the African continent by 2040, and it will be the people that decide the future of conservation uh, on this continent, not bigger fences and more guns. So instead of going into their home and rearranging everything to your liking, you're forging relationships more. A lot of conservation was going in, in the direction of militarization, and it still is uh, across much the continent and the world. It's out of frustration, it's out of desperation. And, and look, even we were going that way, and we, you know, one of our big programs we ran along the Mozambique South African border, uh, we went in there, we, we were spending a bunch of money each year, we had helicopters, airplanes, canine attack teams, drones, and we essentially had this, this war with the local population there where all these rhino poaching syndicates were operating out of, and we stopped poachers from coming through into the highest concentration of population um, uh, of rhinoceros on, on the planet, and we were winning. But deep down, I knew that what we were doing was not sustainable, and it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't a long-term solution. And it was only out of desperation that we pushed ourselves far enough into a corner that we had to look at different solutions. Uh, we could keep doing what we were doing, but it just it, it wasn't right. You know, having a long-term sustained war uh, with local populations—it's not. It's never in history is there a winning example of that being a good outcome. And uh, it was through the desperation, the trials and tribulations, the background of the Iraq war, and just wanting to think outside the box that we ended up uh, starting this program in Zimbabwe called Akashinga, which is uh, predominantly female-led forces protecting areas uh, right next door to the communities they came from. I want to get into that because as a woman, when I met you and Bimbai, uh, I was in all of her, Sean. You actually, I was, I thought that she was like Justin Bieber and I was like, listen to her like this. I was like, wow, drool coming out of the side of my mouth. That's how wonderful this woman was. Her story was, I don't even know if the word is inspirational, but I know it, it opened something in me. But is this at the time that you had already started the foundation or it was after that you started the foundation? No, I found out, yeah, this is yeah, it's well after. Uh, so this program in Zimbabwe started in 2017, the organization was founded in 2009. So okay. there's a whole, you know, like like us as individuals, organizations also evolve uh, and they evolve through experience. And uh, that's that's what we did. Uh, now, I'm not saying that what we did in the early days uh, wasn't effective. It was effective. It's just that there were better ways of doing things. Uh, there's still a lot of organizations out there doing exactly the same thing that we did 11 years ago. There's no other organization doing what we're doing in regards to uh, a network of nature reserves that are, that are protected by women. Oh, nice. So um, the foundation, what is, is it a conservation? Is it protection, a sanctuary? 
No, we're a conservation organization. Uh, we have two main streams in terms of the work that we do. One is, is land preservation. So we go into long-term management contracts with local community. Currently, uh, our contracts uh, for our portfolio of reserves is about 1.6 million acres that we look after. The ranges that we've trained at the moment help protect across the continent around 20 million acres. And we do that through a program up in Kenya called Lead Ranger, which is the other spear in, in, in our armory, uh, is, is training leaders and instructors. So instead of going around trying to train all the rangers on the continent, find out which organizations are doing, doing well and have good infrastructure, ask them to send their leaders to us, uh, which they do. We work with their leaders and then we send those leaders back into the workplace as instructors. So now, they now have an ongoing education capacity as opposed to relying on uh, external instructors coming in or trying to get all their ranges from the field and sent away to a training facility. We bring permanent education into the workplace. And what, what, a, what would a typical schedule look like for you and for, you, for your team, a daily schedule? Yeah, or well, me at the moment, lockdown, man. I'm I mean, like, in a, in a normal situation, not this new yeah, world we're living yeah, yeah, in. Yeah. But I get, you, I get you. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying to make, uh, make light of the situation here. You know, we like, uh, you know, much of the world at the moment, we're in lockdown here in Zimbabwe. So I'm sort of my weapon of choice at the moment is a keyboard, and uh, but, you know, out in the field, we try not to set uh, too many patterns. When you set patterns, uh, you become predictable. And when you become predictable, you get exploited. Now, we're in, a, in a, a law enforcement environment where we're trying to be one step ahead of the poachers. Uh, we do set patrols. Uh, those patrols can be short, as short as four hours or as long as, as long as five days that the women are going out there on, on, on the front lines, essentially. Uh, the programs we have are in the Zambezi Valley. Uh, over the past 15 to 20 years, there's been thousands of elephants killed throughout that ecosystem. So they're always on the lookout for poachers, armed poachers that are trying to kill elephants for their ivory uh, or any other animal that they're, they're, they're out there trying to hunt. Uh, we're reacting to information. We're working in the communities when animals wander into the communities. We have what's called human wildlife conflict. Uh, we're working with traditional leaders, local business owners, uh, and essentially the community is our family. Uh, so we do community projects from roads to clinics to schools to water, uh, and that, that is us working with them to make sure that they're in a healthy state. Uh, and in return, they help us look after the reserves the, the, where all the animals are so that those reserves stay in a, in a healthy state. And it's much easier for us having a, a community that believes in what we do rather than have a force that's trying to fight back against them. Uh, me... Uh, you know, my days at the moment, um, normally a, a, a year for me, I'd probably spend six months of the year away from home. Any, anywhere up to three or four months of that would be lecturing around the world on one of the National Geographic uh, live speakers. So just did a tour late last year of North America. Um, it was awesome, you know, doing, doing some really big crowds over there and, and a bunch of shows. You know, sometimes, I mean, like Seattle, we did three shows in a night there, uh, uh, three, show, three shows in a, in a row. Um, fundraising out there, big borrowing and stealing, stealing bucks to keep the mission going over here. And, uh, and also traveling around to our pro projects in Africa, um, meeting with everything from, from presidents to, uh, to, to rangers on the front ground, uh, on the front lines and anyone in between, uh, keeping our programs going, looking at, at uh, innovative gaps that there may be in our industry and, and how to fill those gaps always trying to evolve, always trying to be flexible, always be willing to, to, to listen and to learn from what others are doing and put our hands up and acknowledge when we can do things better. So let's move back to Akashinga because I, um, again, please pardon the ignorance, but in Zimbabwe, yeah. what is the language or languages? Uh, so there's the, the actual the official language is um, is English, and then Shona and Indabali are the two uh, the two main languages that are spoken here. The, the area, the region that we're working in, um, Shona Land West, is uh, it's Shona is the is the the main language, and all of our staff pretty much uh, speak that. They also speak uh, uh, um, Indabali as well. So Akashinga, what does that mean? Uh, in uh, translated in Shona, it's a name that the women uh, came up with for themselves for the program. It means the brave ones. Yeah, so that was I thought that was pretty cool. 
where, where did that name Akashinga came from since it's all women? Yeah, so the, the women that we employ, they all come from backgrounds of serious sexual assault, domestic violence, AIDS orphans, single mothers, abandoned wives. Uh, so they've, they've had a really tough background. And then they come on to this program uh, where we train them up to be rangers. They're deployed, they get a job, they're empowered, they become leaders in their local community, they're respected. Uh, they're able to stand up for themselves. Uh, they're doing one of the toughest and, and, and most respected jobs on the continent. And the name they came up with for themselves was the Brave Ones, Akashinga. Are they only women or men can also join? Or is this just the fighting forces that you have? So in the industry, and this, you know, our evolution to, to this, this model was looking at other industries that were getting ahead by getting more women uh, on boards, more women into management, more women as CEOs. And we looked at conservation that women were outnumbered on the front lines around 100 to 1 uh, by men. And we thought, well, if, if, if women aren't being given the exposure they need at ground level to move into these management positions, then conservation just isn't going to progress like other industries were. Uh, when we started the program, we tried to find women that had the right capacity to work in, in uh, instructors' positions or in field operation management positions, we just couldn't find them. Uh, so we've been building that capacity as we go along uh, because women just hadn't been given that exposure previously to have, have the experience necessary. Uh, and over time, women have progressed to become you know, sergeants, staff sergeants. Uh, we've got two women on our uh, training team at the moment. Uh, so some of our instructors are male, some of our management is male. Uh, the idea is that we'll keep working with the women that are coming up through the ranks and get them ready for those positions. All our staff, uh, all our all our scouts and all our rangers are uh, deployed on the ground. They're all women. Hey? Do they use weaponry? Yeah, they do. Hey, uh, They do. They're armed. Uh, they carry assault rifles and heavy caliber rifles. Uh, also, uh, non-lethal uh, kit like pepper spray, uh, extendable batons, uh, and uh, a taser. You know, we we have trained the women in correct escalation and the use of force, rules of engagement. So our, our objective is to use the minimum amount of force required to get the job done. The women have made uh, 187 arrests to date, and there's only been shots fired uh, once. So wow. what? So what was it? What is it like working with? big animals like what was been your experience coming from your background and, uh, you know i grew up with kangaroos and possums so i'm still uh i'm still getting <laughs> you know, out here you know, out here when you make a mistake something steps on you or rips you apart or eats you so uh <laughs> you know it's it's um i still shit myself on on regular occasions man when something creeps up behind me i'm not ready uh, yeah, it's a different world, hey. It's a different. I mean, in Australia, everyone watches all these these television programs and these things that sting you and bite you, and next next minute you're dead. And uh, out here, it's it's like that, but it's different. You know, things are massive, or they jump on you, and it's yeah. It's so it's continuously uh, learning on that one, and um, grateful to be guided by people that understand these animals a lot better than me. Do you have any interesting stories or any close encounters that you want to share with us? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been a few. I'm just trying to just trying to figure out which one is. Uh, I mean, it was, it was one time we we're, we're lying in an ambush, and uh, uh, you know, ambushes. You know, you see you there. We had information that poachers were coming through a certain part of the fence, and I was away from the rest of the group. You know, was spaced out, staggered out. And uh, I heard this chomping that's coming, getting closer and closer. And I knew the sound. It's a distinctive noise. And it's, it's, uh, it's a black rhino. Uh, it weighs, uh, it weighs about 3,000 pounds. And they, they're chewing the leaves, the mapani leaves, a specific tree. Uh, and I knew this. It's a very dominant male bull that lives in the area called Shungu. And a black rhino is one of the most grumpiest creatures you can possibly imagine with terrible eyesight and the natural defense mechanism is to charge and, and try and destroy anything. This is an animal that's hardly evolved for 50 million years. So they're doing okay. Uh, I'm hearing this chomping getting closer and closer. Now I didn't have, I just had like a bit of foliage around me. I didn't, I was just, I was in thick scrub, but there was no tree to climb up or, or log to hide, hide behind. 
and it's getting closer and closer. And I thought, you know, these things can run 35 miles an hour. And so I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not going to be able to outrun this thing now. So I thought I'll just stay there and try and be really still. Anyway, it's getting closer and closer. So the option now of running it's not even there. I've just got to try and ride this out. And it's starting to sniff all around where I am. And now the, the, the leaves are starting to move on, on, on the, 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 the tree that I'm, that I'm hiding in. And I can feel the hot air coming out of its nostrils. And I thought, um, I'm dead. This is it, big fella. This is, this is how it ends. A dozen tours in Iraq, and, um, and this is how it ends. And uh, just as I thought it was about to trample me to death, it spun around. It's a good, t- a good time to mention you know, the, the, the penis of a black rhino weighs about 70 pounds and can, shoot, can shoot five gallons of urine about 15 feet. It spun around and unleashed just a fire hydrant of piss all over me uh, from point blank range from like there and absolutely drenched me and then ran away. And uh, I actually laid there and cried with with gratitude. I mean, I was like covered in, in rhino piss, but I was just happy to be alive. I thought I was going to die. But what that is, is the rhino is actually marking its territory. So it didn't see me there. It smelt me. And uh, that was its way of basically owning me. Hey, buddy, back wow. off. <laughs> oh, my and God. That, yeah. I had no idea. Well, that should tell you how much I know about rhinos. <laughs> yeah. 70 pounds? Yeah. Oh. And you said they had poor eyesight? Like they cannot Yeah. See He's pretty well. accurate, though. He had poor eyesight, but he was spot on. So that's an interesting fact about uh, rhinos. So male bull, males are called bulls. Uh, penis weighs about 70 pounds. Uh, they can urinate a lot and far, and yeah. um, they have poor eyesight. What about elephants? Because, um, again, you know that I'm from Asia, and Asian elephants, I, and their ears are smaller than the African elephants. But what's, like, an interesting fact about elephants as well? So the African elephant, uh, you see, they generally have much larger tusks, which makes them a bigger target for poachers. And in Asia as well, a lot of the larger elephants have been taken out of the, uh, taken out of the, how do you see, they've, they've been poached for their tusks. And so what you've had is a lot of Asian elephants are now born without tusks uh, because of that genetic gene pool being depleted. Uh, African elephants still largely being targeted, uh, up to 35,000 of them being killed a year across the continent. To feed that into uh, illegal illegal trade, illegal wildlife trade, yeah. But uh, it's um, yeah, the, 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 the different things you have to do for each animal over here that's trying to kill you. Like a leopard, you can't make eye contact with. You have to walk off in an oblique angle when you see a leopard. A lion, you can't walk forwards when you see it because that's a challenge. You can't walk backwards because you've now become weaker in the, in the eyes of the lion you have to just stand there even if it charges you and i've been charged by a lion and had to stand there fortunately i couldn't run anywhere because i was frozen solid with fear uh an elephant an elephant you've got to try and run downwind and you've got to be ripping your clothes off and throwing throwing the clothes as you go hopefully the elephant will pick up like a hat or a backpack and, and play with that for a while and pick up on the scent before it, it starts chasing you again a rhino, you want to just try and get up a tree. You only have to get up like one and a half meters, and it's it's too high for it to, to do any damage. A buffalo, which is one of the most feared animals on the continent, uh, that animal will hunt you out of spite uh, until you are uh, uh, up a tree somewhere or dead. So that's um, – yeah, there's, there's, yeah. And so when you look at all the these different animals and what these rangers do, it really makes you respect um, how much of a tough job that they've got out there. And the biggest threat is not necessarily the poachers they're trying to stop. It's the very animals they're trying to protect. So if these animals are so dangerous, like we already know they're dangerous, but how is it that these poachers are able to kill them then? Well, they, they carry rifles, but they, the poachers understand the bush intimately. And just because all these animals can kill you doesn't mean that they're out there trying to do it all day, every day. Uh, if they feel threatened by you, uh, you get between them and their they're, they're young, then there's every chance that, um, that they're going to come after you. Um, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, a, a good ranger and someone that under, understands the bush will keep you out of trouble before you get into it. And poachers are uh, some of the best bushmen that I've, I've ever seen. Uh, they're amazing in the bush and they, they have accelerated senses in terms of what and, and things that I don't even know will see are happening. They're taking it in long before I could even fathom it. 
So you've in the course of our conversation, you mentioned some of the things that poachers, some of the reasons why they um, poach from these animals, like the tusk and what have you. What are some of the other, maybe less commonly known reasons are why these animals are being destroyed? Yeah, cool. You know, let's, I mean, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the pangolin. Uh, the pangolin, which we know at the moment is is one of the animals that's been involved with uh, transmission of COVID-19 from animals into humans. It's what we call a zoonotic disease, uh, uh, supposedly in the wet markets of, of China. Now, pangolin is a delicacy, uh, in, in, in particularly in Asia, uh, so they like to eat the meat, but the scales are used in traditional medicine. Over here in Africa, uh, it's, it's seen as a, a reward or a gift that you would give to a, a chief or a traditional leader. And... Uh, you know, so that's one reason that, that these animals may be poaching. Just in the last two weeks alone, we've we've uh, one res one pangolin we rescued alive, and the other other pangolin we intercepted. It was being traded, so it was already dead, uh, and we intercepted that. Uh, and both times, uh, males have been arrested and, and now serving what's what's a mandatory sentence here. Uh, other other things, uh, other animals that are poached, uh, obviously. Um, Basically, any 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 type of animal for bush meat, uh, and a lot of times that that meat is sold as an exotic meat, That's something that, that is different to people that want to get a steak or chicken. Uh, you can eat these different types of game meat. Uh, some restaurants will serve it. Um, some markets will sell it. Uh, also, the skins of animals as well, uh, particularly some snakes over here. The python python here is a especially protected species. It's automatic nine year, years in prison if you kill a python. Uh, yeah, and of course, you know the big ones that uh, we we often facing is is ivory poaching. So elephants being killed for those tusks. I know that when my grandfather lived in Cameroon, um, off camera, we were discussing that he did move between Cameroon and Peru back in the '60s. That yeah. one of the presents yeah. that he brought back to the family was a couple of figurines of elephants, and at the time, I didn't know they were made of ivory, and we still have yeah. that in my mom's house. Um, yeah. We still have those ivory figurines of elephants that at the time I didn't know that they were ivory. But at least in Asian culture, and I can tell you that from firsthand experience, a lot of the, these animal parts are used for traditional Chinese medicine because they think yeah. that it's going to give you prowess. It thinks it's going to cure erectile dysfunction or some yeah. type of disease that um, these traditional Chinese medicines can grind up or put in a drink or put it in a salve. And um, in, I would think that in modern times, some of these beliefs would have, I don't know, dispensed maybe, because we know that certain things are not going to get fixed from animal parts. You know, in a, a lot of aspects, uh, the use of not just traditional medicine as a whole, but very specific parts of traditional medicine, for example, rhino horn are entrenched across not only generations, but thousands of years. And uh, just getting up on a, on our on our soapbox and saying, "Hey guys, this doesn't work," isn't really a way of addressing the demand side. The demand side is 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 driven through culture. And mm. Look, if, if if your great grandmother used something and told your grandmother about it, and your mother, and then then you've you've been told that and believed that your whole life, it's very hard to just change that overnight. And uh, there are very good efforts that are taking place in, uh, in a number of Asian countries uh, to try and reduce that demand through education and definitely seeing a lot of traction, uh, particularly with the younger generation uh, and a generation raised uh, with social media, that information is more readily available and people are able to make better decisions in regards to what types of traditional medicine uh, they use. Now, traditional medicine in, in itself, definitely from my experience and I've spent time living with um, a, a traditional healer in Vietnam, a man named Yang Ben Thi, uh, who had his own pharmaceutical company in the jungle uh, near the border of Cambodia and, and learning from him. And, uh, and I went there to try and understand the use of animal parts in traditional medicine. Now, he didn't use animal parts in traditional medicine. It was all, all, all plant-based um, products that he was using and selling, but uh, he was definitely able to give me an insight into into a culture that, um, well, animals used for medicine, it's used for entertainment, it's used for food, uh, or it's used for decoration. And you know, over there, it's, it's just a, 
the use in medicine is, is just another form uh, that animals are exploited. I don't know what, what, you know, if we look at the use of animal, I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, what's worse, someone using an animal for food or someone using an animal for, for medicine? What do you think? Well, I'm coming from a medical background, scientific background, there, and I guess a vegan background, there's really no reason, especially in the type of age that we live. However, I understand that there's people who are not born in the privileged background that I was yep. in a country yep. that I have the opportunities that I do, or that I have had, or the learning education that I have. And I think it's up to us, like you said, through social media, through what me and Sean do or other organizations that they're, I mean, it's reaching global scales that now everybody in one way or the other is connected or can see videos, can see um, educational videos, can hear podcasts in many various languages, one way or the other. Yeah. Sean, so, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I, I echo those, the same sentiments that you just put out there. It's you have you have alternatives and at the same time you know you people are in certain situations where they do what they do and you know it's looking at the full equation but at the same time always looking for solutions for alternatives i think the big the big um hope that's out there is that with the education with the access to the information and organizations such as yourself looking for those alternatives is just hoping that one day that we can wean yeah. off of what we've done in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, just because we've done something forever doesn't mean that we have to keep doing it. And look at, look at China and often big changes in society, they come from the ground up and, and through groundswell and, and public, public movement. And, we have uh, something we have something along those lines even in the nursing world because if we did things like back in the day we wouldn't have the way that we do things now especially yeah. when it comes to infection when it comes to the equipment that we use and if you look at social culturally slavery would still be legal women wouldn't have the right to vote um, gay rights would not even be at the forefront and very other social and economical issues would not yeah. have come to the forefront yeah yeah and where I was going with that is, uh, when you look at China now, and, and overnight they're able to flick a switch in the sort of setup that China has, and they can flick that from the top down, and, and they've basically shut down uh, these wildlife markets. Uh, you know, so, you know, we're here in the middle of this this global pandemic, and there's a lot of people doing it tough, a lot of people out of work, and and uh, but while we're stuck at home in our living rooms let's just give a thought to nature who for the first time perhaps in hundreds of years is able to go about their business without being disrupted uh, without being killed and slaughtered and and there's a positive side to to this and it's not all about us we're one of millions of species uh on this planet but we're the only species that tends to want to uh, decide what level of suffering is acceptable for everything else and at the moment we're restricted to our living rooms and that's maybe um it might be inconvenient, but it's not a bad thing for everyone. Yeah. 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 So, I know, look, who knows, eh? Who knows what the other side of the world looks like when we when we come out of this? Uh, I'm optimistic that it's a reset. It's a it's a it's a time for reflection just to decide what's important, what's not. It's a wake up call to say, hey, listen, we just can't keep going on this accelerated way forward without caring about uh, everything around us and the footprint that we leave on this planet and ultimately this planet's been spinning for over five billion years and it survived a lot worse than than, than human beings and will continue to do so uh, what this should uh, uh, really bring home for all of us is that if we don't figure out how to live in harmony with nature that it's not nature that's endangered it's us mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I so, totally agree. So I'm, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on sanctioned hunting? You know, every once in a while we'll see an American or someone, you know, with privilege hunting yeah. a giraffe or a, a lion or something like that. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Sean, let's be real. Our president's kids, they love to hunt. Yeah. So look, a, a lot of... So across Africa, 
there's so many areas that have been set aside for hunting and for decades it's been used as the only economic model to pay for management to pay for fences to pay for ranges that go out there and protect uh to work with local communities but the the profit margins have got smaller and smaller as populations have shrunk. Uh, you've seen shifting policies surrounding export of trophies, for example, ivory from Zimbabwe to the United States, that's been banned. Uh, so hunters, you know, the, the Americans made up more than 50% of the clientele that came to Zimbabwe to do that hunting. Uh, and then you've got a younger generation, uh, as I was saying with Asia, a younger generation raised on social media. Well, that's, a, that's not just exclusive to Asia, it's, it's, a, it's a global thing. And people just don't want to get on a plane anymore as much and fly across the world so they can shoot something to hang above the fire. So that means a shrinking market space for hunters to operate. Um, now, as hunting is dying a natural death, uh, all these areas that have been set aside for hunting no longer have hunting in there as an economic model. And that's where we're coming in and buying, buying out these areas. Uh, I suppose what I hate more than hunting is the fact that as a global community, we've relied on hunting is the only economic model for so much land, an area collectively the size of France or Texas across the African continent that is being protected through hunting as a model. And uh, look, I used to hunt uh, after Iraq. I never wanted to hunt again because I knew what it was like to be hunted. And, uh, you know, I, I can speak to a hunter because that used to be me and I knew why I did it. I did it when I was at a vulnerable time in my life and I was trying to... Uh, provoke some sort of primal respect from my peers. I did it when I was young and, and still, I didn't know who I was and I was trying to figure that out. And to figure it out, I took aim at the vulnerable. That's something I got to live with, but you know, we're all a product of our past and I, I wouldn't change anything because it's made me who I am today. And I, I'm not someone that born, was born the way I am. I'm, a, I'm someone that's evolved over the years. And that evolution gives me a, a standpoint to be able to speak to the people that are still going out and hunting. Um, if the if the international community is so upset with hunting, the international community needs to find an economic alternative for all the areas that hunting is currently in. Uh, we can't just switch hunting off as much as we'd all love to, uh, because when we switch it off that area, it loses the source of income that it has. Now, a lot of that money doesn't go into the communities. It goes into looking after the reserve and, and look, hunting is a commercial business. So people are in it to make money. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've got to look at the consequences when we just flick this switch off. And uh, it, as much as I hate to say it, when you flick the switch off in a lot of areas, the hunting operation fails, they pull out. They take their vehicles, they take their ranges. In many cases, those people have been working on that bit of land for decades. Uh, and then you're left with a vacuum. We are moving into the vacuum, but we're only moving in there after a couple of years of it being vacant. And I can tell you from the first areas that we took uh, for, that used to be hunting areas and that had no protection for some years, there was absolutely nothing in there. And we've spent the past three years working very hard to build these areas up so they have wildlife populations again. But, uh, yeah, look, you know, if, if, if the rest of the world hates hunting, okay, the rest of the world needs to say, all right, we hate hunting, we don't want to see it anymore, here's some money to put in a different model to protect this area. I don't think that we, I don't, I don't want to rely on an animal having to justify its existence through a couple of offtake, a few animals being shot so the rest can live. I want to rely on looking after nature because it is one of Earth's self-regulating systems. Uh, perhaps it is the best self-regulating system, particularly when we look at problems that we're facing as a global community like climate change. Uh, we have to protect nature because it's not only in our best interest, it's in the best interest of civilization. So let's say we have somebody in the United States that wants to, you know, just bringing it closer to home, that wants to make a difference in some of these locations where it is legal to hunt. Um, what would what would your advice your um, your advice be to them? Maybe to get them on the right, give them a head start in terms of pulling something together that may be able to um, switch that industry. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, look, the people who've got the money to hunt, come over here and spend uh, you know, $100,000 or $50,000 on a hunt so they can put their hand up and say, hey, you know, I'm a conservationist uh, and they can show their buddies an elephant hanging on the wall. Get, like, really drill down into, into the why. 
on that? Why do you want to have that animal there? What are you trying to demonstrate? What are you trying to prove? Uh, you know, if you're really, if you're really passionate about the conservation angle, then just find a charity uh, and get behind that charity and support that charity because that ch charity can go out and support those those animals, protect those animals, and then for years to come, the, the animals that that person wanted to come over can be used for graphic safaris, and it's a, it's enough putting in uh, ongoing funding as opposed to, you know, look at so many so many ecosystems across the continent now have been shot out or, or wildlife populations are so small. Hunting and poaching have, have played a large part in that. Uh, so instead of trying to kill animals and use that as a way to justify a, a direction forward, let's look at preserving them and building these populations back up. And, and for, for no other reason, it's just they fucking deserve it. You know, animals have been persecuted over and over and over again by this one species, this this human being, over and over again, and you know uh, they're continuously persecuted for being born into a world they'll never understand. At what point do we just go, hey, listen, you know, yeah, all right, we, we've been assholes long enough now. Let's just protect nature because it's the right thing to do. And what is um, shifting back to more of lifestyle sort of conversation? What is the vegan scene in Zimbabwe? Or in Africa, yeah. for in general, <laughs> since you've yeah. traveled over. I mean, people people think of Africa and they think of animals being put on the fire and roasted over open coals, and it's you know Africa was raised largely on a plant based diet, and uh, animals, the killing of animals were reserved for ceremonial purposes, and there's some great traditional crops here that are starting to reemerge. Uh, Zimbabwe or Africa has huge problems with um, hypertension, blood pressure. Uh, diabetes, cancer, stroke, uh, and this is from a really um, poor diet-based dietary choices that have, that uh, the last few generations have been raised on, and um, we're seeing a, a slow emergence of uh, plant-based eating uh, taking place. Our program in Zimbabwe, uh, all our rangers, all our staff are, are vegan. We've got six uh, vegan chefs that are working uh, to feed a growing force of rangers out there doing one of the toughest jobs in one of the most remote locations, and they're thriving. They're doing it on a plant-based diet. We have a program called Back to Black Roots, uh, which is working in the local communities, uh, teaching people how to grow their own food, how to prepare their own food from a nutritional standpoint, how to speak about it from an ethical standpoint, and how to know about it from an environmental standpoint. Interestingly, the start place of that program was in a small village called Nyamakati, which translates into the meat pot uh, from when the area that we work in used to be uh, you know, the center point of this, this hunting industry. All the, the, the meat that used to come out of, of being shot, uh, this, this was the center place for it and it became known as, as, as Nyamakati. Uh, so yeah, we're looking, we're, we're slowly, um, you know, driving this, there's not a lot of examples on the ground in Africa of vegan programs or plant-based programs uh, and trying to engage the public. Movies like Game Changers, uh, really good tool, uh, getting getting uh, getting the, the message out there, particularly in the cities, in the communities, you, uh, in the rural communities, rural areas, you've really got to go on uh, uh being able to demonstrate uh, something that works. You can't just show a video or something. It's easy. Okay, you build something that works, you uh, get people engaged with that and then let the word and the results spread and let people come in and ask to learn more about it and how they, they can get it going in their own communities. And if these chefs are cooking such awesome, yummy food, people are want to try it because, I mean, you know, the palate is like, oh, this is delicious. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we look more and more at, at, at the sources of these zoonotic diseases as well. It's people like, well, you know, I want to understand a little bit more about that before I go poking around and, and, and eating that stuff and, and putting ourselves in danger. So you know, I don't know if any pandemics that have started lately from from uh, minestrone soup or anything like that, any vegetable soups or, or grazing out of the veggie patch. Yeah. Yeah, a carrot is not, you know, doing anything. We're not going to have the carrot flu. No, we're not. <laughs> we're not. Yeah. What, are, what are some of your go-to favorite um, dishes to have? Yeah, I am curious. Uh, Again, I don't know too much about African culture in the, or at least in that part of the world, but uh, fruits, vegetables, what do you guys have? Mango tree. We've got an avocado tree. Okay. Avocado, <laughs> avocado, mushrooms, mushrooms, those things up. 
you know, we've got, you can't see it now through the, um, but we've got a whole section down there in the yard. That's one of our veggie gardens. We've got three veggie patches here. Uh, we've got five acres of veggie patches up on, uh, sorry, vegetable gardens up on the, on the project there. So we're growing a lot of our own food. Me, I love cooking. Uh, after the military, I actually almost became a chef. And then I realized I prefer cooking for a small household than uh, um, for five or 600 people a day. So, um, but yeah, I love getting in the kitchen, love Italian food, love Mexican food, love Indian food. Uh, you know, I can't, I mean, my, my go-to is, is just a big uh, vegan bolognese. Eh? And uh, yeah, but um, yeah, food, man. food, you gotta love it. Okay, never I mind. That. I thought that you were going to tell us some exotic fruit that I'd never heard of. Never mind. But you're like mango, avocado. I was like, okay, same thing that we have <laughs> <Yeah>. in Florida. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got these. We got a, a couple of bushes down the back there. They're called gooseberries. They come in these like seed pods, and you pop them open. There's this little yellow berry in there. It's like this sweet and sour flavor. Yeah, they're, they're cool. Nice. Gooseberries. Gooseberries. Okay, that sounds good. So do you have any new projects, as we're wrapping up the, the conversation, do you have any new projects or anything that you want to talk about that maybe we didn't cover? Yeah, so we, uh, our, our expansion at the moment, well, we sort of, you know, we, we're having to uh, adjust and be flexible with the current uh, crisis that the, the world is in and uh, making sure that we, we're solid as an organization. We've made expenditure cutbacks uh, and we essentially building up a war chest of funding for what could be a long and, and cold and dark winter of, of uncertainty. And uh, you know, my job is to make sure that we come out of the other side of that still alive and still strong uh, as an organization. Um, we had been building up, uh, we're involved with expanding uh, quite a lot, uh, in, particularly over the last 12 months, training of new rangers, the building of a training center, an instructional team, uh, training instructors from four different countries up in Kenya. Uh, a lot of that stuff has just been put into, into like a standby mode at the moment. Um, but when we come out the other side of this, and there's uh, more certainty from uh, within the global markets where you know, essentially our money comes from, where our donors, our donors play in, uh, we'll be focused again. Like we've got 80 women that are ready to start training uh, in preparation for deployment uh, out into the Zambezi Valley, uh, and essentially every six months we'll train uh, another another 80 women. So that's five courses of 16 women going through each each program. Uh, to protect a growing portfolio of, of preserves that we're managing in conjunction with the local communities. Our target with Akashinga is to employ a thousand women by 2025. You've got a, a, a legion of women uh, who are doing this amazing job um, and really just demonstrating to the world and uh, well, to the communities and to the world that, that uh, they can not only do the job, but they can thrive at it. And you said that um, if anybody wants to donate, where should they find you or the organization? Uh, yeah, so we're a registered uh, U.S. charity, uh, 501c3. Uh, people can get online, donate through our website. If they just Google the word anti-poaching or if they type in IAPF, International Anti-Poaching Foundation, you'll find us there. And uh, just follow the bouncing ball through the donate page. And, um, yeah, we're very grateful for anything uh, you know, we, I mean, big and small donations, they all add up, hey. And, you know, we're at, we're at a time where it is tough and we appreciate every cent that comes through and it's put to very good use here. We have a GuideStar Platinum Level Rating. GuideStar is an independent U.S. charity evaluator that determines how effective we are uh, at achieving our mission uh, with the money we have. Uh, and only 0.5% of charities in the United States get a Platinum Level Rating and we've got one. And we want to thank you so much for... The coming onto our podcast, taking time out to have this conversation with us. I know we're living in a, a new world right now where everyone gets to adjust and shift, yeah. but education and information is always going to stay the same and how we deliver it is through this podcast. And if you want to get the notes and find all the links that we've discussed, you can go to soflowvegans.com slash podcast. That'll take you to the page where you can donate, learn more about Damien Manders' organization and thank you so much. Awesome, thank you, guys. Thank you very much, eh? Thank you. Stay safe. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. Yeah, so that was the episode with Damien Mander. And we want to thank you so much for tuning 
in and listening to another episode of the So Flow Vegans podcast. We are winding down season four, and uh, it's been an amazing season, and we look forward to launching season five in the weeks to come. But until then, what you have to look forward to are episodes with Philip Mangan, the vegan model, and Mike the vegan. So we're excited to release those episodes and glad that you are subscribed, that you are sharing, you're liking, and you're helping us get the word out about this podcast because we love having these conversations, bringing it to you. And one of the things that we want to do more of is share your voice. That's right. We want you to be able to ask questions for you to connect with our guests and the way that you could do that is by communicating with us send us an email at contact at soflowvegans.com let us know what you want us to ask and we'll ask those questions and you also get the heads up on when we book guests and when we're going to have those conversations so go to soflowvegans.com and join our community. And I said it at the top of the podcast, and I'll say it again now. It's soflowvegans.com slash community. It's a free membership. You get access to a lot of cool features. You can vote for your favorite um, vegan people, favorite restaurants. Even if you're not from South Florida, it's a great opportunity for you to get connected to this amazing global hotspot for veganism. And of course, stillfullvegans.com slash podcast is the place you go to hear all of our past episodes and subscribe to us on multiple platforms. So if you are on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple, Google, we're on all of those platforms. So as soon as we drop an episode, usually it's before we promote it on social, you'll have it right in your phone. So thank you again for listening to the SoFlow Vegans podcast, and we'll see you next time. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans podcast. <laughs>